God is good all the time. Welcome to Christ Church. You may notice that everybody up front is wearing a little bit of Christ Church gear. We're going to do that all through October because part of our October emphasis for our 500 evangelism effort is wearing Christ Church gear. And then when someone asks about your gear or the church, just simply handing them a card. It's just boom, boom. That is our focus. And it reminds us that inviting people to church doesn't have to be awkward. It doesn't have to be something we force. It can be something really, really natural. And I find that when I wear uh, something like this, I get asked a lot. And I don't have to go up and initiate conversation, but people come to me. We've got this stuff in the bookstore, all kinds of things according to how you dress and what you wear. But uh, I'm excited about what God is doing here at Christ Church. Welcome to week four of Jesus of Nazareth. He would have been called in his own day Yeshua Nazareth. It simply means in Aramaic, Jesus of Nazareth. They would have spoken Aramaic. People wrote in Greek. Now, if you had a common name... And Jesus was a common name. It's also Hebrew for Joshua. So very common name. And there was getting to be a lot more people in the first century. A lot of times, even though they didn't have last names like we do, there would be some way to distinguish this person from a whole lot of other people with the same name. Now one way was to attach them to their father. And he's usually bar and then father. The other way was to attach them to a place. So when we say Jesus of Nazareth, it is the Jesus from Nazareth. Jesus was raised in this small village in the interior of Galilee, population 500. How many of you grew up in a really small village like that? Maybe a population 500 kind of thing. Jesus is raised in a Jewish household. Joseph is a tecton in Greek. It simply means carpenter, but it always, always concerns me when we say carpenter that you think Jesus grew up in like central Indiana. It's not that. Uh, carpenter meant that you made useful things out of stone or out of wood. I've been to the Galilee a gazillion times. There's a lot more stone than there is wood. So Jesus probably would have had a hammer and a chisel. He would have formed useful things out of the basalt stone that is all over the place in Galilee. Jesus is the oldest child in the household. No doubt he assisted Joseph in the family business. Best we can tell, Joseph died when Jesus was either a teenager or in his 20s. We have Joseph there when Jesus visits the temple at 12 And then Joseph completely disappears from the narrative. If Joseph died, and I think there's a good chance he did, it reminds us that Jesus didn't come to earth with a get-out-of-pain-free card. He had to go through those things as well. One thing we know from the culture, if Joseph died, all of a sudden Jesus is the oldest child who would have been in his teens or possibly 20s, Jesus would become the family breadwinner. He would become the tecton. Jesus probably worked with the people in Nazareth providing things. I would say most towns could handle one tecton. When business got slow, I'm pretty sure Joseph and Jesus would have gone to nearby Sepphoris. It was a 
Jewish city that was literally being built at the time, there would have always been work for a tecton in Sepphoris, and it was within walking distance if you were willing to walk a little further than we are today. This is Jesus' life. If he does spend time in Sepphoris, he's going to make contacts there. He's going to get to know people there in a much wider way than he would ever get to know people growing up in isolated Nazareth. Jesus is blue collar. Jesus is artisan class. There's no evidence Jesus married. He would have been in his 20s when almost everyone he knew would have been married. In the series, we're probing the Sermon on the Mount. Upon relocating from isolated Nazareth to Lakeside Capernaum to kick off his ministry roughly at the age of 30, Jesus is quickly followed by huge groups of desperate people. People who couldn't get help anywhere else. Sick people, the doctors couldn't help. Uh, mentally afflicted people that they could find no cure for them. These were the people that flocked to Jesus. People who were desperate. People who had huge needs. And the Gospels tells us in these early days, Jesus healed them all. He healed them all. So why did people flock to Jesus? To get their lives back. And he gave people their lives back. On a mountainside near the Sea of Galilee, which actually isn't a sea at all, it's a freshwater lake, Jesus pulls his disciples aside on a mountain overlooking the lake. Crowds are beginning to form and Jesus leans in. And he starts teaching about this counterintuitive realm that he calls the kingdom of God. He begins by suggesting that the most blessed people of all are those who are most acutely aware of their need for God. So hear me. Jesus would say, if you have come in here today with your world blowing apart, if you're coming in here today feeling a little desperate, if you're feeling overwhelmed by the circumstances around you, what would Jesus say to you today? He would say, blessed are you because you are acutely aware of your need for God. You are acutely aware. You can't do this on your own. Blessed are you. And then he told his disciples, you are salt and, and you're light. You're what's good in this world. You're what preserves the goodness of this world. And you are to lead people to God. He then followed with this incredible proclamation that he didn't come to abolish the law. He came to fulfill it. And that had to seem really odd. Coming from a guy who went out of his way to publicly break the rules and regulations of the law. Coming from a guy who, at every turn, agitated religious leaders. People had to say, what, what are you talking about? Most of the people who heard Jesus considered keeping the rules and regulations of religion and a relationship with God to be one and the same. And you may have been raised in a tradition where you considered keeping the rules and regulations of religion... And a relationship with God to be one and the same. So the more carefully you follow the rules, the more religious you are. The more religious you are, the closer to God you are. Jesus taught the purpose of the law is to connect people with God. And substituting the demands of religion for a personal relationship with God missed the whole intent of 
the law. This intellectual gut punch reminds us that the teachings of Jesus are not therapeutic moral plays to make people feel better. They are utterly disruptive to anything in us that does not align with the kingdom of God. Most who follow Jesus went to find better religion. And Jesus offered something else entirely. Himself. I define religion as as blind adherence to a preconceived set of notions. I I consider it to be a neutral platform. It's what you adhere to that makes it good or bad. We all know some of the greatest good the world has ever seen and some of the greatest atrocities the world has ever known have all been done in the name of religion. And then you have to add to that a whole lot of not much at all because that's what a lot of religion has done for decades. Jesus reminded his listeners, if religion connects you with God, it's good and it's useful. But if religion is substituted for a relationship with God, it becomes something that is dangerous. When Jesus took on the temple establishment, he was trying to offend the bad religion right out of people. And I think if you look at Jesus in his ministry years, if you say, Tell me what he's trying to do. He's trying to offend the bad religion right out of people. And there are some of you here today who need the bad religion offended right out of you so that you can actually have a relationship with God. And offend them, he did. Jesus got under people's skin. And that's why when he got done, they either bowed before him or they yelled, crucify When we read Jesus today, and we read the Sermon on the Mount today, if we were to be real honest, we don't get it. Like, what was just read? I mean, you hear it, but we don't get it. There's nothing in our culture that prepares us for the radical nature of what Jesus was actually saying. It doesn't rev us up. We just think, well, that's odd, next. So often we do that with the Bible. Well, that's odd, next. With Jesus, you can't do it. I've had a lot of people this morning tell me, that was a really good sermon. I said, Jesus preached the sermon. I'm just trying to make it understandable to people in 2023. So I want to take a deep dive into what Jesus is actually getting at, given the understandings of his own culture and his own surroundings. We live in a day where there's an ad campaign that says he gets us, and I'm sure he does, but I'm not sure we get Jesus at all. Let's dive down and see what we get. In our passage today, Jesus proclaimed that it is impossible to keep the law. The holy rollers would have thrown a flag. What are you talking about? We've dedicated our whole lives to keeping the law. In response... Jesus is going to take the Ten Commandments and he's going to raise the standard. Think about this in contrast to our culture today and much religion in our culture today. They take the Ten Commandments and they're lowering the standard. Jesus never did that. He raised the standard. For Jesus, there's no way to keep the Ten Commandments. Because even if you can keep them in action, you can't uphold them in motive. And even if you uphold them in motive, you can't uphold them in impulse. Jesus' intent in the Sermon on the Mount is to produce 
absolute despair in the hearts of his listeners. Jesus is saying religion can't save you. Religion can't save you. You say, why would Jesus want to produce absolute despair in the hearts of his listeners? For the purpose of offering incomprehensible hope. Jesus is saying, religion can't save you, but, drum roll, please, I can. I can't. That's why the downtrodden were far more open to the good news than the self-righteous. Those who think they are not in need of grace will always be reluctant to receive it, but they're going to be even more reluctant to offer it to others. So let's get at what Jesus is doing. Verse 21, Moses said, do not murder or you will be subject to judgment. I'm guessing the crowd's feeling pretty good up to that point. Right? Moses said to not murder. Boom. I mean, all of us non-assassins, we feel like we have that nail, don't we? There was this hard and fast rule in Jewish religion. You never, never mess with Moses. It's kind of like in the 70s. You didn't mess with Leroy Brown. And in the roaring first century, you didn't mess with Moses. And you never messed with the Ten Commandments. So guess how Jesus opens? By messing with Moses in the Ten Commandments. At first glance, thou shalt not kill. And if you really get into the Hebrew, it's better translated, thou shalt not murder. It's kill without cause. Seems like a slam dunk, doesn't it? I mean, it's one commandment most of us feel like, boom, we're on it. Now, Jesus takes the one commandment that almost everybody feels like they have nailed, and he's going to blow away any hope of religion getting us to heaven. And he's going to say, you can't even keep that. Verse 22, but I say, if you harbor contempt towards someone... Or call them an idiot, you are subject to judgment, and if you curse someone, you're in danger of the fires of hell. This is where we check out and go on, right? Because it's a little too disturbing, we don't really get it, so we just move along. We're not going to do that today. Three things are specifically mentioned. Harboring contempt against someone. Calling someone an idiot. You could also translate moron or fool. And then three, cursing someone. In doing this, Jesus has now moved from something horrible like murder that none of us do to not so great things like getting angry, saying bad things, and cursing that almost all of us do. And his point is, it's all about the same to God. Terrible. Seriously, terrible. In the Ten Commandments... It was the action that presented the sin. God said don't and the sin occurred when you did. Or God said do and the sin occurred when you didn't. But for Jesus, sin is more like a train wreck. The train wreck always starts long before the train comes off the rails. For Jesus, sin long precedes actions. The sin in murder is found in harboring the unholy, angry impulse in us that leads to murder. Having an angry thought is not a sin. There's not a thing we can do about it. But for Jesus, it's what we do with those thoughts that determines everything. Now, some of your translations read, if you're angry 
with someone and that doesn't go deep enough, it's, it's, there's some anger, there's some things that ought to make Christians mad. There's a righteous anger, a righteous indignation. Jesus had that himself when he clears the temple. Remember that of the buyers and the sellers. It's not that that this is talking about. A better translation would be if you harbor contempt toward someone. Harbor is a really interesting word. If you harbor a fugitive, you become a criminal yourself. Harboring in a fallen world is giving quarter to something that shouldn't be there. Harboring a fallen and fugitive impulse like anger makes a sinner of us. Feeling the impulse is not a sin. Harboring the impulse is the sin. The Greek denotes this is a seething anger. You ever been mad and you work to stay mad? It's that. It's the kind of anger that you choose not to let go. It's the kind of anger you feed so it doesn't go out. It's October now. And it's fall. And everybody knows that except the weather. (laughs) During the fall when the weather cools off, and it will by next weekend, Melissa and I light little fires on the weekends quite a bit. Just a little fire out in front of us. And my cabin is in the middle of a forest. So I have an inexhaustible supply of kindling. Every morning you wake up and God kindles the earth. All right. It's kind of like manna for the children of Israel. Every morning you wake up and kindling is there. And so you, you pick it all up and, and you get it going and you build a little fire. Well, let me tell you something about little campfires. They go out if you don't feed them. And Jesus is saying, there is a kind of anger that we were never built to carry. And it'll go out if you don't just sit and feed it. Feeding the anger is the sin. You see, those who harbor anger are time bombs. You may be a time bomb yourself. You know how that goes, don't you? It just builds up. It builds up. Melissa sent me to the store the other day, to the grocery store. I don't think I'd been in one since the late 90s. And, and she wanted me to get two liters of soft drink. All right? Two liters of soft drink. So I went in, and I had a dollar, and I was wondering what to do with the change. And so I, I, I walked in. And it's like three bucks and some change for a soft drink. And, and I, I, I walk out of there, and, and I'm thinking, Wow. But you know what? You get that soft drink and you stick it in your car and you don't pay a lot of attention to it and you just drive. And sometimes you open your door and it just rolls right out. You know, it's nobody's fault. It just happens. Like mowing your yard and a meteor hitting you. It's that kind of thing. So it just rolls right out. Well, you know, you can get a soft drink. You shake that, you shake that two liter thing up and long enough, it builds up a lot of pressure in there. Then you twist the cap. That's some of you. Right? All of life just sort of shakes up your root beer. And then something happens. Somebody says something. Somebody pulls out in front of you. And all of a sudden, they twist your cap. (laughs) That's what Jesus is talking about. When we're filled with anger, 
It doesn't take much to set us off, does it? And when we get set off, anger turns into words. We say stuff. Have you ever gotten mad and said stuff and then you told the person, I really didn't mean it? Flag. Yes, of course you meant it. You didn't mean to say it. Jesus says if you let the anger build up, it'll turn into angry words. And once you get into angry words, you're not far away from curse and offering a curse. The words, the Greek used here is, is more, moros, and it's where we get moron. It can be translated idiot. It can also be translated fool. But you need to understand in those days, strong language was reserved for unique times. People today use horrible language all of the time. I was around a guy a couple weeks ago. He was just regular talking. And I bet he flipped out 13 F-bombs in a 30-word sentence. And I looked at him. I said, dude, what do you say when you get mad? You got nothing left. You got nothing left, man. You just kind of vomited it all up here in regular time. Well, I remember when I was a kid, if you called some people some names, they'd drive a fist through your nose. I mean, people took offense at some things. If you called people some names, those were what we used to call fighting words. You guys know what I'm talking about? They were fighting words. Now we don't have any fighting words at all. They're just all horrible. Well, these were fighting words, calling somebody a fool, calling somebody a moron, calling somebody an idiot. In that context, those were fighting words. You say, well, what's the problem with that? The problem is that Jesus argues that using deeply insulting words against another person elevates us to a position of superiority over them. When I call you an idiot, it says I am better than you. When you call someone an idiot, you are saying, I am better than you. And Jesus says, the second you get thinking you're better than anybody else, you are in soul danger. You're in soul danger. I got news for you, and I'm sorry if you had to hear it first. And can I use some Southern Illinois vernacular? You ain't better than nobody. And neither am I. We are all straight-up sinners saved only by the grace shown us in Jesus Christ. Yes, we have good news to share, but we will never be effective evangelists if we think deep in our hearts we're better than other people. We're not. Jesus is. We are not. So now it's about to get worse, right? Fun's just starting. An insult is not far removed from a curse. In the Jewish world, a curse placed a divine injunction upon a person. It was a big deal. The most serious curse would be damning someone to hell. Damning someone to hell would be the most serious curse. It's a most grave statement because hardwired within it is the elevation of self to a level that we believe we can eternally damn another person. It's not saying I'm a better person than you. It's saying I am your God. I have authority over your soul. It's the place 
yourself in the judgment seat reserved for Christ and Christ alone. And Jesus said those kind of curses will land you in danger of not judgment, but hell itself. Because you will end up dealing with the hell that you're trying to conjure on somebody else. Those who stand in self-righteous judgment of others are in an equally precarious position before God as those, is their attempt, as those are they're attempting to judge. That's when you begin to understand what Jesus was talking about when he said, judge not lest ye be judged because the same measure you use to judge someone else, God will use to judge you. Are you starting to get this Jesus stuff? So, what's the remedy? We all have angry impulses, all of us. You say, I don't. Flag. Flag. We all have angry impulses. There are going to be people who are going to get on our last nerve. And there's stuff in the world that shouldn't make us angry. And there's other stuff that's just peevish. We all have angry impulses. That's not a sin. The sin is feeding those impulses. Keeping that anger campfire going. Because at some point, somebody's going to twist your lid. And words are going to come out that put you in a place of thought superiority over another person. And those are going to turn to curses, which put you in the place of God himself. And from that position, there's not a thing Jesus or anybody else can do with you. So what's the remedy? The remedy is to get right with people so that you can get right with God. I'm going to say it one more time. The remedy is to get right with people so you can get right with God. Verse 23. If you're standing before the altar in church to make sacrifice and remember someone has something against you, reconcile and then go offer your sacrifice. Come to terms with your enemy before it's too late. And again, if we're reading this on our own, we're just going to blast right through. We're going to blast right through. But I'm going to hit the brakes here. Unrighteous anger, words and curses, not only stand between us and our neighbor, they stand between us and God. When we do not, when we disparage our neighbor, it blocks our relationship with God. I got one for you, Lord's Prayer. Forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. The syntax really isn't exactly that. The syntax is forgive us our trespasses to the extent we forgive those who have trespassed against us. Are you starting to see why Jesus made people mad? Are you starting to see why people just got lit up when Jesus is speaking? Jesus is saying, if you have unforgiveness in your heart, you're not right with God. Get right with people so we can get right with God. Jesus painfully reminds every single one of us that we are all guilty. And the impetus is not to prove our innocence, but the impetus is to come to terms before things get any worse. Listen, I've been married 40 years now. A year ago, we were in the throes of, she was fighting cancer. We were in the chemo thing 
And it was an unbelievably challenging time in our lives. And some of you know exactly what I'm talking about. And I remember during those times, you know, you'd already been married 39 years. And there's always some stuff that inevitably gets on your nerves when you live with another person. And I remember times during that when something would happen and I'd almost say something. And I would look at her and I would think, shut up, Shane. This doesn't matter. Your wife's fighting for her life. Shut up and love her. You know what Jesus is saying to us concerning our neighbor? Shut up and love your neighbor. Move past your peevishness and your self-righteousness and love your neighbor. Make things right while you still can. Some of you need to hear this. You're cross-threaded with people. Make things right while you still can. You see, for Jesus, religion can't save us because we are all incapable of compliance. If we're not guilty of the actual murder, we're surely guilty of harboring anger. We're certainly guilty of feeling contempt toward others from time to time, cursing others, judging others. Jesus is reminding us we're all straight up sinners and nobody likes to be reminded of that less than religious people. It's not just the worst of us that stand in need of repentance. It's the best of us as well. The reality is that those who have not had a lot of wrong in their lives have never been as good a candidates for the message of Jesus as those who have had a lot of really rough things happen in their lives. It wasn't the rich and famous who followed Jesus. Some of those folks converted later. It was the desperate who followed Jesus. Jesus' teachings gave the desperate hope, and they outraged the self-righteous. Say, how do I know which one I am? Just monitor how you respond to Jesus' teachings. If it's just lighting you up, all your religious flags are going off, that's not great. If it's driving you toward your knees and repentance, you're in a pretty good spot. Let's finish this up. Verse 26. I assure you, you won't be free again until you've paid back every last penny. Now, in the Roman Empire, people are talking about the Roman Empire again, which is really weird to me. But I have been interested in the Roman Empire forever because the Bible happens in the context of the first century Roman Empire. Deep in the Roman psyche, they did not feel that people should get free room and board in jail simply because they can't behave themselves. All right? They didn't. So what they do is just beat the daylights out of you. They just beat the daylights out of you publicly. If they maimed you, who really cared? The worse your offense, the worse beating you got. You really didn't have jails in our sense of the word. You had political prisons and you had debtor's prisons. Debtor's prisons happened when you got yourself in too much debt. And they would finally throw you in jail until it was either paid off or you rotted. Those were the choices. And that's what Jesus is referring to here. You won't be free again until you've paid back every last penny. This is classic Jesus. He always offers a big twist at the end. If we offer quarter to our sinful impulses, if we feed those, if we offer quarter to our seething anger, our religiosity, 
or delusionary claims of innocence, then the law God gave to set us free will actually make captives of us all. Jesus is going to leave his listeners with two choices, and he leaves you and me with two choices today. We can try to keep the rules and regulation. We can maintain our own goodness. We can look to religion to save us. We can try harder to do better. And if we do, we'll die in our sin and go to hell. Or we can declare ourselves to be sinners. Repent. Receive the forgiveness Jesus brings us. Be reconciled to our neighbor and be reconciled to God and live with God for eternity. Those are the two options. I don't know about you. I'm going to choose door number two. Door number two. Religion is going to tell you, try harder to obey the rules and it will make you right with God. Jesus is going to say something quite different. Receive the salvation I came to offer you through my death and my life and my resurrection. And I will make you right with God. Why? Because Jesus did not come to abolish the law. He came to fulfill it. And the purpose of the law is to make us right with God. I want to just offer a brief word of invitation as the band comes out. And I'm just going to ask you to bow your heads and just look into your own hearts. And I'm going to ask you a single question. Have you been looking to religion to save you? Have you been looking to religion to save you? And if you have, I just want to suggest it's a loser's play. You'll never be good enough. And even if you are, sometimes you can't be good enough all the time. And even if you don't do the wrong things, at times you'll still have the wrong emotions and the wrong feelings. There's, there's no way out of that. We cannot be good enough for God. We become right with God by receiving the gift of salvation that Jesus offers us. So I'd like to lead you in a prayer, just to repeat after me if you're comfortable doing that. This could be a prayer of salvation or a prayer of rededication. But let's open up our hearts to Christ. Would you repeat after me, Almighty God, thank you for loving me. And I love you too. I know I'm a sinner. Forgive my sin. And give me the grace to forgive myself. Jesus, come into my life. Fresh and new. Make me into the person. That you created me to be. May I live my life. Loving you. And loving my neighbor. In the joy. Of Jesus Christ. And we pray in his name alone. Amen. Look at me and say I am a Christian. Christianity is not a prize to be earned. By the ultra religious. It is a gift to be received by desperate people like you and me. Let's lift up the name of Jesus in our closing song. There are some people that would love to pray with you at both sides of the altar and both sides of the balcony. Let's sing and worship this incredible Lamb of God.